Hi everyone, my name is Nisreen Kamal. I am the Arabic editor of the China Global South project. And uh, let me tell you a little bit about the work we're doing before you get to today's podcast. So basically, if you check the news to look for stories about China's ties with the United States or Europe, you will definitely find a lot. But when it comes to stories about China's relations with developing countries, which we call the Global South, it's a different situation. So this is where we come in because we provide you with in-depth analysis and daily reporting about China's activities in Africa, the Middle East, Asia, and even the Americas. And our services are available in three languages, which are English, Arabic, and French. So you can subscribe to our services for only $15 a month. You can try it for free for 30 days at chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe. Once again, that's chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe. Thank you. The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witts University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on China-Africa relations through training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Podcast Network. I'm Eric Olander, and for this Week in Review edition, I'm joined by my two best friends, Kobus van Staden, our managing editor based in Johannesburg. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. And on the beautiful island of Mauritius, our francophone editor, Gero Nima. Bonjour, Gero. Bonjour, good afternoon to you, Eric. So we wanted to do a Week in Review show this week simply because there is just way too much going on. And when there's a lot going on, we want to pack everything into a single show. So we're going to talk about three topics this week. One is going to be the COP27 summit in Cairo, Egypt. And we had a robust debate in our newsletter this week on the outcomes of that and specifically related to who is going to pay for messing up the world. Then we are going to talk about the standard gauge railway revelation of the contracts. And well, actually not the contracts. These are the loan agreements. We still haven't seen the contract yet, but we got a sneak peek at the loan documents that underlie the contract. And that happened a couple of weeks ago. We haven't had a chance to do a show on that. So we're going to bring you up to date on that. And then finally, we're going to talk about just a flurry of Chinese diplomacy and international diplomacy, mostly out here in Asia, but a number of African leaders made their way out to Southeast Asia to meet with Chinese President Xi Jinping as part of the G20 summit, and we're going to get some of Kobus's take on that. So let's first start our discussion with COP27. So I'd like to get both of your take on what you think the big outcome of this big climate summit that took place in Cairo over the past week and a half or so. A lot of people were very optimistic that we're finally going to get some breakthroughs on financing. We're going to get some breakthroughs on, you know, really bringing the world to, uh, you know, to bear as to what's going on and specifically to have a much stronger African voice at the summit. At the same time, there's folks like me who think this is just more or less a colossal waste of time. So let's start with you, Giro, and then Kobus will get your take. Just the quick overview of what your impressions were from COP27. 
Personally, I was not expecting much because when we see what's happened in the last COPs and the, all the engagement they've taken and how the outcome of those engagement after those meetings, I, I was not really expecting to see much of a traction or much of a strong commitment from rich countries. And we actually saw that when we saw countries like China or United States who are not really pledging any money into compensation that was expected from developing countries, I was like, yeah, not really much of a surprise. I even wrote a paper on that how we should forget about climate justice in the world for the global south so yeah that was pretty much my impression i cannot say if i was disappointed if i say i was disappointed it means i was expecting something i was not really expecting something having something big coming up from there i was like yeah that's something but i was not really expecting something so i think the countries in the global south will need to think of different solutions when i say global south i don't include china in the mix because china clearly has its own now agenda portraying himself as much more lead of the developing countries without really being a developing country in a certain way. So I think that we need to think of alternative solution and alternative approach in the way to organize ourselves in that debate. But yeah, that's my take on that COP27. Okay, so Kobus, it sounds like Jero and I are more aligned on this. You have a slightly different view, although not that different. Let's get your high-level view, and then we're going to go into your column and my column that took slightly different perspectives on this as well. Well, you know, the first thing I think to keep in mind is that we're recording at a moment when they're still heading into the hardcore, like kind of through the night negotiations about what's going to be in the final declaration. So, you know, that's always the most intense part of the COP process. And so it, it's going to be very interesting to see what from the current debates happening this week will actually make it into the final declaration. So, you know, as you say, like, it's better not to have high expectations for any real action coming out of COP. What I think is useful, though, is to take a measure of where we are, what, what what can be said, in, you know, kind of in the mainstream climate discussion in the world and what can't. And I think in that sense, it, we, we made some progress. In the first place, this concept of loss and damage. So essentially, you know, kind of not only helping global South countries, funding them to overcome, you know, and, and adapt and mitigate to climate change, but actually to compensate them for the actual damage of climate change, the historical damage of climate change became a really big discussion at, at COP27. It wasn't even on the radar in COP26. So I think that's an interesting kind of move forward. In the second place is also a proposal from India that a drawdown of all fossil fuels should be put, you know, kind of on the agenda. Keep in mind that until COP26, they've only managed to get coal on the agenda. Like COP26 didn't even, you know, manage to like refer to all of the fossil fuels. So this was also a big step forward. There's a lot of doubts about whether that will actually make it into the final declaration. If it doesn't, that's notable. And it was quite possibly, among others, because of pressure from oil producing countries like Saudi Arabia who, who said that they worried that adding it will demonize the fossil fuel industry which is funny so I think a, a move forward in the kind of mainstream conversation about the climate crisis how much of that is actually going to translate into anything helping anyone is another much bigger question and there I'm a lot more pessimistic well let's pick up the issue of loss and damage that's a new phrase that entered into the vernacular this week if you recall from previous cops and previous agreements there was something called the climate adaptation fund now this was supposed to be a 100 billion dollar fund that wealthy states were going to pay into and that was going to help developing countries and the world's poorest countries to offset some of the worst impacts and the worst effects of climate change. Well, only about $20 billion was paid into that, not even that much. So 80% was just neglected. And so in order to move on from that, the environmental community and folks at COP came up with this idea of loss and damage. Now, let me 
play some sound for you from Yared Deme, who is a research analyst at the International Climate Action at the World Resources Institute. And WRI produced these videos from COP that really tried to promote this idea of the loss and damage concept, which will give you a better sense of what's going on. Over 3 billion people live in a country highly vulnerable to climate impacts. That includes my home country of Ethiopia, where we are facing our worst drought in 14 years. The human and financial toll from torrential rains, unprecedented drought, and other extremes is rising fast. Yet developed countries have thus far resisted providing support to poorer nations to address such losses and damage. That urgently needs to change. At COP27 summit, the world must stand in solidarity with the most vulnerable by finally making real progress on funding to address loss and damage. Okay, so I don't think anybody disagrees with the legitimacy of that point of view. The point that I wrote in my column this week, and again, we had a rather interesting back and forth, Cobus and I, on this, and I, I wrote, and the headline was, we need to acknowledge that climate justice could be doomed. By the way, that was Cobus's edit of my headline. <laughs> my headline was, <laughs> we need to admit that climate justice is a fantasy. And so Cobus kind of toned it down a little bit for me. So that, thank goodness for that you're there. Everybody, I always say that everybody needs a little bit of therapy and a little bit of copy editing. Those are the two things that everybody needs. <laughs> and just to be clear, I, I edited in that way, not to kind of soften your point, but to just clarify the thinking behind it was, was that even if it is a fantasy you know th th it's that kind of like blue sky thinking that this key to climate planning you know kind of like one one has to make these kind of like big mental leaps and so so fantasy is kind of part of part of the of the deal you know kind of so yeah okay and and this is where i completely disagree with the environmental movement i think we're past blue sky thinking okay forget about it and this became crystal clear this week when Beijing's climate envoy at COP27, Xie Jianhua, said China is not going to pay and participate in any of the loss and damage, any of the adaptation. But they're going to be there with support. They're going to be there to say, yep, we're with you developing countries, but we're not going to sign any checks. And island states, for the first time, started to demand China and India to pay up. And both of them said, yeah, no, not going to do that. And that's what got me thinking on all of this that said, the money's not going to come, no matter how moral, legitimate, how great. And the point that I made in my column was the conversation needs to start from the reality that the, 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 the money's not going to come and that basically the global South, Africa in particular, you're on your own. Now, at the same time as COP27 was going on, Another big event was going on in the United States, and the man named Donald Trump announced his candidacy for president. And in his announcement, he talked about the environment. And this kind of bolsters my point, because we can laugh all we want at Donald Trump for being a clown, okay? But he represents a very, very large swath of the U.S. population. Let's take a listen to a little bit of the tone that he was talking about in terms of environment. And I want you to keep this in mind when we think about loss and damage at COP. The socialist disaster known as the Green New Deal, which is destroying our country and the many crippling regulations that it has spawned, will be immediately terminated so that our country can again breathe and grow and thrive like it should. 
And Germany closed, as you know, all of its coal-powered plants and its nuclear plants. They closed everything, and now they're building coal plants, and they're building them fast. And China's building a coal plant every week. Every week they open up another, and then they talk about all of the things that they do environmentally. They're watching us die with the Green New Deal, with our windmills and with our solar that doesn't have the power to fire up our great factories and our great plants. They are watching us die, and they're laughing as it happens. Remember, economic security is national security, and that's what it is. We need economic security. That's a really important statement. Now, I'm not going to fact-check that. Who knows what's true and what's not? I mean, this thing, his speech was so riddled with inaccuracies, it's just head-spinning. But there's a lot of people who believe in this guy. And at the same time, the United States House of Representatives switched to Republican control. The Republican platform is a fossil fuel first platform. Okay? So let's take into effect, Cobus, that China says it's not going to pay. There is nothing that gives us the indication that the politics are oriented in the United States to ship billions of dollars to pay for climate justice. And frankly, the Europeans don't also have the best record on this because they did not fulfill their obligations under the Climate Adaptation Fund. And my point on this is that Europe is going to be saving all of its euros and its nickels and its pennies and everything else it can find under the couch in order to pay for the reconstruction of Ukraine when that eventually settles. Their concern is not going to be paying for climate damage in Botswana. That is pretty clear. So that's where I was coming from in this. And again, I'm not trying to say that what they're saying is wrong. I'm just trying to say it's kind of fantasy. In the column that I wrote in response, I zoomed out a little bit, kind of timeline-wise. So in general, I agree with you. I think that even in US, even if even if it was a completely democratic-run government, even if there were no no kind of like massive, you know, resistance from the from the Republicans, I think it would still be a tall order to pay hundreds of billions of dollars, you know, kind of in, in compensation to the rest of the world for for historical damages. So that is always going to be politically very difficult. It's going to be difficult for China, particularly because China sees itself as a developing country. It's going to be very difficult for Europe, and we're already seeing Europe essentially using this kind of call for China and India to contribute to weasel out of their own commitments to, to a lot of these, a lot of these, you know, kind of funds. So all of that is true. I agree with you. I don't think that the money is coming. I, however, think that that is only the beginning of the story. And the rest of the story is going to be very, very interesting. Because what the rest of the story is going to be is that if these countries don't do anything, right? And if, if, if it's basically you know, kind of business as usual and the global south is is left to, to slowly kind of like starve and flood and you know kind of like burn themselves you know kind of out due to climate change what's going to happen then is that all of these rich economies and by these i include china and india actually as well these rich economies are all based on global connectivity they're all based on the smooth transfer of kind of raw materials and, you know, kind of like half-finished products and, and so on from the global south into the global north. The kind of re- like smooth repatriation of, of wealth from the global south into the global north. That has been the basis of, of, of the economic model, right? So that model is going gonna, is gonna to die from a million cuts. Like as climate change gets more and more kind of acute, they'll face more and more disruptions. As the global south gets more and more desperate, 
desperate because of climate change, they will face so many more disruptions. Their global systems, you know, from everything from, from transnational farming to transnational manufacturing, from mining, from, you know, logistics, shipping. And then we're not even talking about like migration crises, you know, kind of virus jumps, like all of these different different kind of crises. Are what, what it's essentially going to do is it's going to increasingly make it impossible for these countries to do business globally in any way that they kind of got used to do. At the same time, what's also will happen is that, and this I think is why loss and damage is so interesting, is because it now is this official and formal kind of revocation of the kind of moral leadership of these countries, right? Now, officially, we have text that which now characterizes their development trajectory, which we should keep in mind is to a large extent, their big selling point in the world, right? Kind of, this is why we listen to what Europe has to say. This is why we listen to the, what US has to say. It's because they are so well developed. That history of development has now been officially recategorized as a crime against humanity, right? Even if kind of policymakers in the US and Europe never think about loss and damage again, even if they don't care about how they're seen in the global south at all, which I think many don't, it still is this kind of very interesting shift you know, in, 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 in their in their legitimacy in the world, in the same time when the all of the the supporting systems that, that support every aspect of their importance, every aspect of their wealth is going to come under increasing attack and coming under increasing attack in a way that would be impossible for them to manage, right? Because this isn't this isn't one big thing that you can face down. This isn't you know facing down China over Taiwan. This is the real lesson we see here is something like in Afghanistan, right? Kind of like the biggest, the biggest kind of like army in the world ended up being defeated by very very poor people because they just never stopped just like little attacks that just went on every day and just ground them down and that is what's going to happen that is the kind of long view that i see in relation to this uh, go ahead Jill. let's get your take and then i'll comment on them yes my take on this is it really what scobie said in his column really triggered me on thinking the approach so far when it comes to loss and damage and those compensations from the global north, it's perceived as if, you know, it's a kind of way we are helping uh, the global south country. We are coming to the help. China representative was even bold in his language. You didn't say what he said. He said China had no obligation to do that. It's quite surprising when you know how much China is polluting, not only in China, but also in Africa in terms of its mining activities all over in the different parts of the continent. But they say we have no obligation of contributing in those loss and damage or any kind of fund. But as Kobe said, the interesting part is like, as long as they perceive it as a zero-sum game, it was like, you know, we are our own and you global stuff, you can manage on your own situation. They don't see the need of, I'd say investing, not really compensation, I'd say investing because in the longer run, when they understand that, for example, that you have the flood in Durban and the port of Durban cannot run smoothly and you cannot export your cobalt from the DRC to China, you cannot export your lithium from Zimbabwe to China. They will understand that we need to address those issues issue because once, if we don't do that, the crisis in the South will keep on disrupting the global economy. And at some point, you're going to have to find a way. I don't, I'm not even talking about a migration. In Europe, we always start seeing that. But I think for countries like China, India, they say we are too far away. We are not really, we are not really close to those immigration debate, but yet they're going to be starting seeing that. So those kind of issue, if they start to taking it in a perspective like we have to, either we win together, either we lose together, they're not going to do anything. Let's see how floods going to be to become a norm in South Africa where earth or drought going to be the norm in the norm in different global South countries when it's going to disrupt the natural way of exporting and importing product we'll see how they're going to react 
I don't know where you guys are getting this optimism or this idea that there is an. No, I'm not no, optimistic. No, 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 but optimism. In which world is this optimism? Because what we're talking about is the complete collapse of global South societies and that the kind of knock on effect on the global North. Exactly. In the immediate short term, they don't see it. But once we're going to be showing that, when they're going to start seeing the long term effect, the impact of it, they may not see it in the coming five years, but they're going to have to see it. No, but Giraud, this is the problem with the whole climate change debate, is that it is the ultimate tragedy of the commons. Because long term, nobody cares. And this has been the problem. It's like, well, you know, 20 years from now, we're going to, you know, you know, everything's going to be flooded. Okay, I'll worry about that 20 years from now. And politics today is driven in the moment to moment. Okay, so that's number one. Number two, I think you're both underestimating the hubris, I mean, just the sheer gall of countries like Canada and Australia and Norway and the United States, which you're talking about, they're worried about their reputations. They are in such denial about their reputations. I mean, Cobus, we were reporting this week, there's a new $20 billion green transition plan for Indonesia. This was the first big program coming out of the Program for Global Infrastructure Investment. Did I get, no, Partnership for, oh Lord, this is another, you know, this messed me up in another podcast of like, these American acronyms I can never remember. Say it again, yes. Partnership for. Partnership for Global Infrastructure and Investment. There we go, PGII, PGI2. So this was the successor to B3W, Build Back Better World, yet another acronym. Who can keep track of all these acronyms, guys? But anyway, and, and yet and you look at the list of countries that are promoting the green transition. You see the United States, you see Norway. I mean, the list went on. You're just like, wait, number one fossil fuel producer in the world, number seven fossil fuel producer in the world, Canada, the number, you know, I mean, like these are extractive economies. And again, just the hubris it's <laughs> just like the drug dealer going to the rehab clinic and saying, you know, we're going to help you out. And you're, you're just like, so again, I don't think there's humility here. I don't think you're going to shame the Chinese into anything. Xi Jinping doesn't give a crap about what you think, you know, saying, well, you're not going to have legitimacy. They don't know because their media universe is completely shut off to this. You talk to the average Chinese person about any of this stuff. They never hear the details of this. Right. So you can't shame them if they don't know. And they're going to respond to local domestic politics. They're not going to respond to environmentalists or Africans or South Asians. You know, what you say is really interesting. And I'm going to give a take on terms of like the human responsibility. I'm going to remove the government on this equation because what you say at the end, they're going to respond to national politics, to the need of the, the society, to the need of the citizen. They're rightfully, they're right to do so. And now for me, it raises the question like how much, for example, in the case of Americans, how many Americans are ready to give up on the big trucks, on the big cars? None. So it's This is the point. So it, this is the point. They're not. We're not willing to make any substantive compromise to our lifestyle for the climate. So exactly. So it goes beyond. It's not even about the leaders themselves. It's about us as a society. We we feel that you know it's my time. It's uh, I cannot uh, I cannot find I cannot sacrifice my my way of living just to preserve in an environment I, that won't I won't be even dead twenty five years from now thirty years I'm gonna be dead by then. So why am I going to 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 deprive myself to have my huge car my you know all of that I need just because some countries in the global south they did not manage to play the game right. So I want to be very clear, and I'm going to give Cobus the last word on this before we move. I'm not suggesting that we write off the entire debate. I'm suggesting for a reframing of the debate that is in a more, I would say, real politic, acknowledging that 
The West is not your friend here. The industrial global economies of the North are not going to help. China and India are not going to help. Europe and the United States are not going to help. And the point I made in the column is that I believe that Africa and the poorest countries in the world are on their own, and they have to figure out policies as that is the starting point. So I don't, you know, that's that. I don't want to say this is all a joke and don't pay any attention to it and forget it. I'm just saying we need to start from a point where basically the poorest countries have to figure out what they're going to do on their own without the help of the wealthy North. The only thing I'm saying is that is that that's that's I think is true, but I think it's only ten percent of the story. Because what happens after that? What happens after that is what we're already seeing in parts in parts of the African Africa China relationship, right? We've seen recently that 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 Chinese embassies in Nigeria, for example, and in the DRC are, are regularly calling for the full evacuation of Chinese citizens out of these out of these regions, right? So you know, because they're so prone to kidnapping, because because there's so many armed gangs, these are a lot of these things are climate related. But they, they appear on our radar screens as crime, or they appear on our radar, radar screens as terrorism. You see that very much in, in, in East Africa. A lot, of, a lot of the conflicts that we think of as, you know, kind of religiously driven terrorism has a very strong climate component. Because it's, it's the disruption of local societies by changing climate that then manifests in other ways. So all you're going to see is just more and more and more and more of these problems. More kidnapping of foreign staff. More piracy. More crazy migration like it's all the, the only thing that the, the, the only point I'm making is that so much of the power of the global north like Europe of, of the US of Canada of Australia but also of India and, and China a lot of their power is discursive right kind of like it, it, it runs according to it runs according to treaties it runs by norm setting it runs by kind of discourse like all of these things all of this kind of like power projection makes them look a lot stronger than they are. What the Afghanistan, you know, kind of example showed is that even if you take this huge army and you throw all of this money at it, you know, like money, by the way, that, that would have solved, solved, you know, the climate crisis. Like in the end, there's only so much you can do with hard power, right? Kind of there's, there's only so much you can control, uh, you know, kind of these kind of very, very poor countries, like through simply invading them, right? There's no way to invade the whole global south. What you're going to find is just more and more these countries are just kind of find that the, the spaces within the, which they can operate gets getting smaller and smaller and smaller. They're going to be chased back into their own borders, which, sure, I mean, they're rich, they're strong, they're, you know, they, they, they'll be able to like hide out in that bunker for a while, but that bunker itself is going to be flooding and burning, right? Kind of because, I mean, California is a, per, is a perpetual forest fire now. You know, kind of, so, so, so what, what you're seeing is just the very basis of their wealth, the very basis of their development is going to start falling apart because it's completely based on, on, on being plugged into the global south and sucking strategic commodities and different kinds of wealth out of the global south. So what are they going to do then? Like, where are they going to get their stuff? You know, kind of more and more, these countries are just going to are going to be reduced to the actual size, which is like little islands of wealth in the sea of want. And then what's left then? You know, so, so, so it's, it's very interesting. Okay. I mean, yeah. Maybe. So there's two articles on our site that I recommend you read. Uh, Cobus's point on this is nickel and diming poor countries on loss and damage will bite the global north. That's the argument that he just made. And then my article is we need to acknowledge that climate justice could be doomed. Jero, you also wrote something in French on this, correct? 
No, I did not. I wrote something more into SGR story that you're going to talk about later. Okay, well, good. Then you are a perfect segue for us. Last week, William Ruto, the new president of Kenya, fulfilled, well, kind of fulfilled, sort of fulfilled, a campaign pledge that he said he was going to release the contract for the standard gauge railway. Now, before you think this is a magnanimous move by the new president, this is really something that is shockingly bad by the Kenyan government because the High Court of Mombasa back in May ordered the government to release the full contract in a court case. The government has ignored that High Court order. Uh, Under Kenyan law and under the Kenyan constitution, it requires that procurement contracts like the Standard Gauge Railway contract with the China Road and Bridge Corporation be made public. So the fact that this hasn't happened is a failure of Kenyan governance. Now, what we got was a, and I said it was a partial release because we got the loan agreements, not the actual contract. And at first there was this excitement, and this was released on a Sunday night by the new cabinet secretary for roads and transportation. And on Sunday night he released it. So on Monday when the first kind of news coverage came out, there was this elation of like, wow, we finally get to see it. And then by Tuesday, the situation really started to change. So people are like, wait, we got to see this thing and it's a piece of crap. And so let me just give you a flavor of, of some of the objections that lawmakers had. And this kind of spread throughout the society. So Gladys Boscholet is the deputy speaker of the National Assembly. And she was interviewed by the national television network KTN to discuss why she's so upset about the revelations. And bear in mind, she is an attorney as well, so she was looking at this with a legal perspective. The other issue that is wrong with this contract, let me just uh, explain to you something else that's wrong with this contract. This contract also says, should there be a dispute, it will be subject to arbitration. That is very well. But it says that the seat of the arbitration shall be in Beijing. And the Address of service shall be the Kenyan embassy in Beijing. And it is deemed that Kenya has been served within 14 days, within 15 days, even though the diplomatic person has not left Nairobi, has not left uh, the mainland of China. Meaning they can serve us, make it impossible to send the parcel to Nairobi so that government can instruct its lawyers, and therefore we will be sitting ducks. And... Furthermore, the arbitration is supposed to be done exclusively by the China International Economic and Trade Arbitration Commission. This is an agency of the Ministry of Trade of China. Okay. And the arbitration rules Mm -hmm. and the applicable law is Chinese. And it also says that in the absence of an agreement, the language of arbitration shall be Chinese. And obviously, we don't have an agreement to say otherwise. Therefore, in a nutshell, what it's saying, the question we're asking is, how do we expect to get justice against a Chinese agency when the forum is a Chinese agency and the arbitration is held in China in the Chinese language, represented by designated Chinese legal representatives? It's it's mind-boggling. As a lawyer, I can't believe... That you could actually put those clauses. So mind-boggling is what a lot of people took away from this. And basically the consensus in Kenya, after looking at just the loan agreements, not even the contract, 
please remember that. We haven't seen the contract yet. But looking at the terms of the loan agreement, people said this was a bad deal. And Giraud, you and I, what we focused on was the deputy speaker pointed out that these were just terribly negotiated terms. They shouldn't have agreed to this. Exactly. They should have walked away from this. This, to me, is as much about the Chinese lending practices as it is about really crappy, crappy Kenyan negotiating. And you wrote an article this week saying that this is really symptomatic of a bigger problem in Africa, that they don't know how to negotiate with the Chinese. And this is really a case study in that. Exactly. So when I was reading the element of the contracts and the comments that Kenyan media were doing and even Kenyan politicians are making, I was totally baffled. I was like, how you guys agreed on terms like this? How? We don't even have the full contract yet, but on basic things like this, how did you present yourself in front of the Chinese as if you were desperate. Because for you to agree on such a terms, you have to be desperate. You have to believe that you have no other choice, no other option than accepting those deals, those terms. Otherwise, you won't find anything else you're going to find elsewhere. So I'm like, no, guys. You have to understand how China works. You have to understand the trajectory. You have to understand what do they want. Because when they were coming, you were not the only one desperate. They also wanted something from you. They also wanted a place where they could invest the money. They could have returns on the loan they were going to give you. So you cannot be coming and negotiating with them and being like, you know, you're going to agree on anything they're going to put on the table. And this is why I, was, I really got mad when I was like saying, I don't understand how much African countries years after, years after Chinese engagement in Africa, they still failed to incorporate Chinese uh, specialists in their apparatus. So you don't have Chinese specialists when it comes to foreign affairs, to uh, to government and everything. So they all has, they, they're always blindsided on what China wants, how China wants it, when they want it. And they always come with their own perspective, like we assume they want this and we just don't have a choice. You're going to agree with that, with those terms. And that's really something really that upset me. And I was completely lost to, uh, to for you, a country, to come and say, yes, I agree to come to your country, A, to use your court of justice, to use your language, to use your terms, to use your law, to settle a dispute between you and I. I'm like, I really wonder what they had in mind when they were signing and agreeing on those terms. Well, this lack of knowledge and what we're calling China literacy and the contract literacy also was revealed in the discussion about the loan agreements. And it's very interesting because in 2020, there was a huge discussion that broke out in Nigeria over the sovereign immunity clauses in the contract. That resurfaced again in Kenya last week as well. And it brought up a lot of incorrect information. Let's go back to Gladys Boss-Cholet. She was once again speaking to KTN Television Network, and she was trafficking, unfortunately, in some bad information. Kenya, in the contract, has waived its immunity as a government and is subject to private commercial law. Okay. That is basically we have exposed Kenya. Okay. Because under our law, Mijungu, we have the Government Proceedings Act, which gives the government immunity such that should you be in default, the property of the government of Kenya cannot be auctioned. But we have waived in this contract that immunity. Therefore, China is capable of auctioning government property. That is extremely unprocedural. We have therefore lost the protection that we'd normally have as a government. 
Let me be as clear as I possibly can be. That is not true. That is 100% incorrect. And let me quote you from the leading expert on this issue, Professor Deborah Braudigam at Johns Hopkins University in the United States. She led a team of researchers, I think, Cobus, was it last year or the year before? But it was recently that she led a team of researchers to look into this question of the sovereign immunity clauses and whether the Kenyan Port Authority and what kind of manages the port of Mombasa is truly collateral for this loan. And let me quote you from a paper that Deborah Braudigan released last week in response to the loan agreement. So I'm going to read a little bit of the quote, but it really is a very important follow here. She said, our team discovered that the collateral rumor originated in a critical mistake by Kenya's Auditor General's office. The government's chief auditor had wrongly labeled Kenya Ports Authority owner of Mombasa Port, as a quote-unquote borrower responsible for repaying the China Exim Bank SGR loans. The port's authority was not a borrower, we concluded. Kenya's government has pledged to repaying this sovereign debt with government revenues, just as it repays Eurobonds and the World Bank. In other words, these are sovereign loans signed by the central government, not Kenya's state-owned companies. And then she goes on to say, and this is the most important part, Our conclusion, therefore, was that the waiving of sovereign immunity did not mean that Kenya Ports Authority assets were deliberately put at risk. The waiver of sovereign immunity, and there's been a lot of writing about this in the aftermath of the exact same discussion that happened in Nigeria, okay, exactly the same discussion. The sovereign immunity clause is a standard piece of contractual language which basically says, in the event of arbitration, you cannot hide behind sovereignty. We will go to a third party for arbitration. That's it. That's it. We have put links to a number of experts who've written explainers and policy briefs and all of this in the aftermath of Nigeria Kenyans apparently did not follow the debate that was going on in Nigeria, and policymakers like Cholet do not apparently understand the sovereign immunity clauses. Kobus, it is deja vu all over again when we talk about these sovereign immunity clauses, this this controversy. Yeah, I mean, it's so disheartening, you know, kind of also because the previous issue that you mentioned about the, the, the location of the arbitration, you know, is is directly related to this, but is so much more so much more of the bigger issue, you know. Yeah, but they could have negotiated that. They could have said, listen, we're not going to agree to do this in Beijing and we're not going to agree to do this in Chinese. I mean, that's a negotiated term. I mean, if they don't like it, then they should have walked away. Well, they didn't. And that's the point, right? Kind of like, um, Gerard, you've been following the kind of ins and outs of very controversial Chinese mining deals in the DRC, right? Kind of like, you know, and and including the the, the very, very kind of criticized Sikumin deal, uh, you know, kind of which was made made a long time ago. And there's still disputes about, you know, kind of all of the the infrastructure still not being provided and, and, and so on. What do you think is some of the dynamics that go on within African governments in their negotiation with China in making these kind of bad deals? Like what what are the the kind of like the calculations in the minds of African policymakers when they make these kind of deals? 
The calculations, it's pretty much simple. They're driven by the need of internal politics. Most of them, they always have in the back of their mind the needs to provide for, you know, for at the end when you're going to go for re-election, you want to show results. You want to say, I did something, I provided something, I built road, I built infrastructure. The question won't be about if it's economically viable, but the question will be like, you know, the perspective of it. So, I need money. The moment most of those governments were contracting with China, they had a very bad economic situation, a very bad financial situation. They could not get loans from other traditional lenders. They had to do reforms, and many of them were not willing to go on the extent of making those reforms. So you have countries like DRC, for example, because you have natural resources, it it really makes it easy for you. Like, you know, it's a barter. You give me money, and I give you my natural resources. The ins and outs, of the condition of the contract was not even the main preoccupation in their minds. In the case of Sikomin, we, we had we had many reports where what we've read, like Congolese experts did not even read the contracts. They did not even go deeper into understanding the ramification of the terms they were signing. Giro, hold on, hold on, hold on. Giro, say that again, that they didn't they even read, read the, contract. the contract. Think about that. This is amazing. Exactly, because the mindset was simple. They give us cash, we give them natural resources. What can be more complicated than that? What could go wrong? Angola did that. DRC, we can also do that. So they're more driven by internal politics, the unwillingness to make the necessary reforms to go to different lenders. They say we go to the less... The less complicated one, the one who's not going to ask us to make economic reform, going to ask us to make political reform, but the one in return who's going to put very stringent conditions that's going to come later to bite you when you read carefully, you realize that now you say, my friend, I'm going to get my money back. I know that you're messy. I know that you're corrupted. I know that you don't do reforms, but nevertheless, I don't care. I'm going to get my money back. So in that context, and, and I even talked about it in the paper, I wrote about that, is in the end, the decision makers, the politicians, are, they have the mindset, you know, I'm Uru Kenyatta, I'm going to be here for 10 years at max. After 10 years, I will never be sued in just in court of justice because of the economic deal I did for Kenya. I will never be sued for that. I'm Joseph Kabila. After my 10 years, Nobody's going to come back to me. Why did you sign this kind of contract? The responsibility will be borne by a successor. Those one also driven by the same context are likely to repeat the same situation over and over again. So we are kind of in a cycle where if people do not decide to do strict reform, internal reform, they're always going to be in the position where they are willing to take you know, bad deals coming from China or any kind of contractors they may find. So I also want to bring you back to, I'm just looking at the date here, 2022, February 2022, there was a parliamentary oversight committee meeting in Uganda, and they brought the finance minister, uh, Machia Kasaija, to testify. And he basically said he had to apologize and said, we didn't understand the $200 million contract with the China Exim Bank. You know, I mean, whose fault is this? And again, People always put the burden on the Chinese side saying they're being predatory, they're being aggressive. Honestly, my take on this is that the Chinese are negotiating from, you know, what's best in their interests. And if they don't get pushback, like anybody negotiating a contract, this isn't charity, okay? 
So the Chinese are going to do whatever they need to do to protect their interests and to make sure that they're, you know, they're in the driver's seat. It's up to the other side to basically negotiate. Go ahead, Kobus. You know, kind of like that protecting their own behinds includes coming, as we've pointed out many times, it includes coming with legal teams from New York and London. It comes with with using Western contract law and it comes with using western lawyers so it's like why don't african governments not just spend the few million dollars and hire a good law firm why it's like because you have the paranoia that if we hire a western law firm the the deal the terms of our deal may leak into the western <laughs> government they can come back to us i'm You're telling right. you seriously <laughs> No, I'm really I mean, but that's stupid. I you mean, have that's just that. dumb. I'm sure you're right. Mm. I, I know, but, but I'm sure you're right. But it's just like, again, they're just getting worked here. They're getting worked. And I, I don't even think, by the way, this is unique to Africa. I think this is happening in other parts of the world as well. I mean, some of the contracts in South America that aid data has, resol- has revealed are troubling as well. So I don't think this is a uniquely African thing, but I just think people need to wake up that when the Chinese are rolling into town with the China Exim Bank money, you know what? These aren't the white people who are going to forgive the debt in, in five years, okay? You remember Glencore? Glencore didn't forgive anything. That's fair enough. And by the way, the IMF... You know, world- kind of like like very nice Swiss company, you know, kind of like which, which held back Chad's kind of Chad's debt renegotiation process for a year because they wouldn't concede any write-offs. And they ended up kind of getting what they wanted. The IMF kind of like set in, in, in place a deal that ensured that Glencore did not take a haircut. The same company that, you know, kind of that, that has been accused of many, many other problematic issues on the continent, you know? Like, like the, the stories recently where they were, they were, like, if I remember correctly, that they were flying private planes full of cash to, you know, kind of to pay people off. So... Yes, exactly. Nigeria, in DRC, in Brazil, Latin America. So they haven't had to pay $1 billion fines to the U.S. just because of those bribery cases all over in Global South. And do you remember when we interviewed Liu Kanyi, who is the attorney based in Beijing, and we've had him on the show a couple of times, and he's negotiated a lot of these contracts, and he basically said, if you're going to do a deal with the China Exim Bank, you had better be prepared to pay back the money. Yeah. Okay? Here, again, we have to state... Now, some of these contracts, like the SGR contract and the Sycamines deal, those were done, you know, more than a decade ago, okay? But a lot of these contracts are being they were done four or five years ago. And to your point, Giro, the knowledge and the competency of African stakeholders in their China literacy has not gone up, has not improved at all. And so at the end of the day, if I'm a taxpayer in Kenya, in the Congo, in in any of these countries that are having some of these repayment issues with the Chinese, I would be just pissed as all get out at my government for screwing this up, okay? This is up to the Kenyan government. They screwed it up, and that is the reason why, and Kobus, I'd like to get your take on this, why the government has not released the full loan agreement, because they know that this is a rotten deal. They know it's going to make everybody look bad. They know that this is bad. I mean, it just is going to stink to high hell. This is what I was wondering about because, you know, kind of obviously it's an incoming government, you know, and, and so, so they have a lot to gain by making their, their political opponents look bad. They do. But remember, Ruto was part of that old government. I mean, these guys are not, you know, they're not 15 years old. They were all around when that deal was signed. Okay. So there is a reason why they have not released it. And I think the little appetizer we got last week 
If that is a hint of the reaction, nothing good will come for Ruto if he releases this contract. I don't think anything good comes from it. Because I think his coalition partners have their hands deep in the honeypot. That's why in the end, in terms of political elite in Africa, even if you have new president, new regime, the likelihood to see bad deals come to light is very low. Because you have kind of the same people hovering above the into the political system that at the end, when they campaign over transparency, you know more truth about what's happened. Once they're in, in the command seats, they will not change that much because they know if they do, they're very much uh, putting themselves in, in jeopardy. Okay, we will leave that part of the conversation there. We have a few minutes left. We're not going to spend too much time on G20 only because we have a show coming up on our China Global South podcast where we delve into the G20 in much more detail and all of the excitement that came out this week, actually. It was an amazing week for diplomacy out here in Southeast Asia. We had three summits, three in one week, which is just really quite incredible. We had the ASEAN summit in Phnom Penh that started off the week. Then we had the G20. 20 summit in Bali, Indonesia, and then it finished off this week with the APEC summit in Bangkok, Thailand. Two of those three, the G20 and APEC, Xi Jinping was there. It's the first time that he is back on the international stage with Western leaders. It was quite a show this week, but at the same time, Cobus, we had some Africans who made an appearance. We had Macky Sall, the president of Senegal, and your president, Cyril Ramaphosa, who also had a very quick one-on-one with Xi Jinping. What I thought was so interesting was that there was zero press coverage. I couldn't find one tweet about the Ramaphosa Xi handshake and the visit. Nobody in South Africa seemed to have given the slightest hoot that their president met with Xi. I mean, it was there was not an article, there was not a tweet, there was not a Facebook post, nothing. <laughs> I just thought that was revealing to some extent, you know, but you know, when your president meets, you know, uh, someone like Xi Jinping, apparently it didn't register. President Ramaphosa isn't going through his most popular moment in South Africa right now, you know, kind of, and there's there's a lot of other things South Africans are, are preoccupied by. So the G20 isn't very high on their, on their list of, of issues, you know. <laughs> no, but what did you think of Macky Sall making the trip out there? Now, Macky Sall... He is important because Senegal is the co-chair of the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation that's known as FOCAC. I presume that's why he was there. I don't, can't think of any other reason why. He's also African Union chairman. There you go. That's the reason why. I knew there was a reason why. Okay. The, the African Union usually has observer status at the G20, and therefore the rotating presidents usually attends. Okay. That really makes sense, and that was why in Xi Jinping's address on Tuesday, he made a specific reference to China backing the African Union's membership to the G20. Pick the story up there. Go ahead, Dajio. Tell us more about that. So yes, as uh, African Union chairman, Makisal was he, he was um, African Union requested to become a permanent member of the G20, and he met with Xi Jinping. Nothing much of the meeting, you know, the basic diplomatic languages and reiteration of you know African countries support China, one China policy. But he made a comment that made me laugh when he said that you know African countries they support China on Xinjiang policy. It just reminded me the Somalia story that we covered two, two few weeks ago, and I was like, yeah. Yeah, maybe Somalia is not, is not on board, but it was a very basic kind of meeting, not, not too long, not much a big of a promise came out of there. So it was like, yeah, China supports Africa request to become a permanent member of the G20. 
Okay, so the European Union is a permanent member of the G20, so there is precedent for coalitions or groups of countries to become members, not just individual countries. I'm not entirely sure that the Western countries are that keen. I think they like the smallness of the club. Uh, so let's see what happens. China backed it, and and she made a reference to it. Kobus, I'd like to end our discussion on the Xi speech at the G20, and I think there's some uh, I- direct connection to Africa, in part because he really devoted the bulk of his speech to global development. And China has this self-appointed role as the leader of the developing world. And again, I want to emphasize that is self-appointed. This is not something that anybody else actually says that China's the leader of the developing world. But she really leveraged this very important speech to talk about a number of development issues. Interestingly, this was fascinating, not one single mention of the Belt and Road. This was Xi's signature foreign policy, signature development policy. Five years ago, it would have been inconceivable that he would not mention the Belt and Road in a major policy address like this. Instead, what we have is the Global Development Initiative. Why don't you pick up the story from there, Kobus? Well, the Global Development Initiative is essentially the Belt and Road 2.0. You know, kind of it incorporates some of the core kind of elements of the Belt and Road and ditches some of the ones that China, I think, now finds, you know, not as convenient, which is which is particularly kind of a, a, a commitment to funding a lot of of like large-scale, long long repayment window kind of hard infrastructure. I think that decision, you know, obviously reflects economic concerns within China, particularly around kind of being on the hook to all of this debt. But I think it all, it's also a, a kind of a realistic calculation that that a lot of global South countries can't really absorb much more debt. And that kind of hard infrastructure part of the Belt and Road, as to a certain extent, I mean, it's not you can't say it, it fulfilled its job but you know kind of it you know a lot of hard infrastructure was built what i think china is moving towards now is essentially essentially staking out development itself as a, as a new field for coalition building for influence building for putting out kind of chinese ways of thinking chinese norms chinese systems kind of out into the world and what they kept from the belt and road was the very strong focus on connectivity. And I think that's also where a lot of the, because I don't think the Global Development Initiative doesn't mean that they're not going to be building any infrastructure. They're just moving the kind of infrastructure they're building. And so I think they're going to be focusing a lot more on green energy, a lot more on connectivity, um, i.e. ICT systems, you know, kind of like like tech-based kind of systems, particularly in the global south and particularly in, in Africa as their companies are facing a lot more pressure in the global north. So this is is a real challenge and, and it actually circles back to some of our discussions at the beginning on, on COP27 because it's a, a real challenge to the very idea that the West, that Western countries have anything to say to the global South on development. The very idea that anything that the global North has to offer in relation to their ideas about what sparks development, the ideas about like what the role of democracy in development, the ideas about the role of institutions in development, all of these ideas are now being hit by the big bus from China, right? Kind of, it's it's essentially like uh, all of these kind of discourses that I think Western countries, but also Western institutions like the World Bank have gotten very used to their ideas about these things being 
just simply the the idea of how these things work, right? Now, I think there's this very big challenge from China on all aspects development. And that, I think, is going to be fascinating to see how it plays out, particularly because it's also being immediately twinned with the Global Security Initiative, which has its own whole set of ideas that China would like to export, its ideas on policing, for example, and also, you know, kind of sets in, in motions a whole set of other kind of like possible, you know, kind of coalition building activities. So, you know, already for example, South Africa has done military exercises with China and Russia. Like kind of under the under the kind of global security initiative, you know, kind of we are looking at the, the this this kind of dovetailing that we've seen in China, where development and, and national security are now seen as equal. That is essentially now also being exported to the rest of the world. And Africa and, and other parts of the global south is going to be ground zero for how it's going to be rolled out. So it's very interesting. And incidentally, you mentioned the joint military or naval exercises among the Russian, South Africans, and Chinese. A new round of those exercises are scheduled for early next year, I think late January, early February. And there's a lot of controversy in South Africa, given the fact that you guys are in the midst of a gripping economic crisis, particularly with the military. Is this the best way to be spending that kind of money? And I think... Yes, and also Ukraine and is Ukraine going. And Ukraine is going, Go so on. you're going to have the Russian <laughs> Navy in your backyard and thinking to yourself, is this really the best optics for us? But there we are. We didn't talk about the BRICS, but the BRICS is now emerging as a very potent force. And the the queue now is getting longer for countries that want to join the BRICS. That didn't come up this week in any of the summits, but I think we need to do a show dedicated to where we are with the BRICS. Gentlemen, we're going to leave the conversation there. As always, the time goes by so fast when the three of us get together. Just in case you're wondering, folks at home, this is kind of what we do when we're not even recording. Kobus <laughs> and I spent an hour today before the show literally having the same conversation. I mean, we just, it's obsessive to a point of, I think, becoming a problem that we talk about this stuff too much. But we're so glad to have the opportunity to share the discussion with everybody else. Uh, you can find Giraud's work over at Projet Afrique Chine, also on Twitter at Afrique Chine. I've got the links to all of that in the show notes. Also, our colleague Nesreen, who's running our Arabic site, her, her links are also down in the show notes. So if you read French or you read Arabic, we've got some great, great content for you. And the work that Cobus is doing is at ChinaGlobalSouth.com. He and I together put out the newsletter with all of the China Global South team every day. If you'd like to subscribe, and we'd love for you to subscribe because you're supporting independent journalists, you're supporting African journalists, Middle East and Asian folks as well. We're all in the Global South, all of us. So this is from the Global South outwards. And that makes us in many ways very distinct from the rest of the China watching coverage that comes from Washington and New York and Europe. So we're very proud of the fact that we're actually in the areas that we're covering ourselves. So that's something that's very distinctive. We've got fantastic deals available on our site, just $7 a month for students and teachers, and then $15 a month for everybody else. And by the way, we're going to be inching up the prices just a smidge next year. So really go and sign up now and you can take advantage of the lower prices. So That'll do it for this edition of the show. Kobus and I will be back again next week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. For Jero in Mauritius, for Kobus in South Africa, I'm Eric Olander in Vietnam. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. 
Tag us on Twitter at ChinaGS Project and visit us at ChinaGlobalSouth.com. If you speak French, check out our full coverage at projetafriquechine.com and Afrikechine on Twitter. That's Afrique with a K. And you'll also find links to our sites and social media channels in Arabic. <laughs>